Hello and welcome back to another episode of You Want to Do What with Dan and Julie. Today we have Lindsay on who is a psychotherapist. Hi Lindsay. Hi, hello. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. How are you? I'm doing okay. It's a little gloomy day here in Chicago. So um, so do you want to tell everyone a little bit about what you actually do? Yeah, so I am what they call a psychotherapist, which is a broad term to describe people who do talk therapy, meaning providing therapy to children, adolescents, adults, couples, families, but we're using, we're talking and we're meeting and using skills that we've learned that they've studied to help people through mental illness. <clears throat> I currently co-own a private practice and we've hired on three therapists. So I see clients myself and then I help supervise and keep the mechanics of the business moving. And I've had a lot of work in hospitals and in outpatient centers, so that's nice that I've been able to kind of see how the system works, at least in the U.S., and then I've been started creating content to try to help those who don't have means or don't have access to care to help them get some psychoeducation on what mental illness is and some quick tips that I've noticed and evidence have shown can work for a lot of people. So what was your story to get you to this point where you are now? Well, you know, growing up, I always knew I wanted to work with kids, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I was dyslexic and I didn't really know. I knew I had like a learning disability. I knew I got some like extra time on my exams, but I didn't really understand what it meant. And what the thing about learning disabilities is that it means that your IQ is still average or above average, but there's deficits. So there's difficulties in specific parts of learning. So I just thought I was dumb. So when I went to pick a career, which is interesting enough, I was like, I can't be a teacher. I can't teach kids. I'm not smart enough. And I thought, why not try to be a therapist, which looking back is kind of funny because being a therapist, being a teacher are equally as difficult, but I just, that was the narrative in my head. And I also had gone to a therapist when I was around 10 years old for a few times and didn't really mesh well with the therapist, didn't find it helpful. I went to two therapists at school, tried that route. Same thing, just did not get any relief. So I was like, okay, I want to be able, I might not have the biggest brain, but I do have experience in this department. So I thought, why don't I try to become a therapist? And what I quickly realized is intelligence is not about what grades you get. It's really about effort and empathy and a lot more than just what I had learned or thought was intelligence. So that's kind of where I got to where I am today. And did you have to go through uh, any formal training to become a therapist? Yeah. And every country is different and every state, honestly, in the U.S. is different. However, we, in the U.S., what I have to do is four years of undergraduate school. So I got a bachelor's in psychology and a minor in human relations. And then you have to go to more school. So I wanted to become, I knew I just wanted to do therapy. I wasn't really into research or I didn't want to teach. So I decided to get a master's degree. So you can, you have a couple different options for that. You can become a social worker. You can become a mental health professional. You become a marriage and family therapist, and you can be become a counselor, licensed professional counselor. So I decided I really love this program in the city. So I decided I was going to do that route. So I became a licensed professional counselor. Um, The next tier I would describe it as is doctorate degrees. So those are what we call psychologists. And there's two routes you can go for that too. So you can get a PsyD or you can get a PhD. And then the 
the next level would be medical school to become a psychiatrist. And psychiatrists are the ones who can prescribe medication. So under that, no one can prescribe medication. So what was your first sort of taste or your first role of, uh, of this industry? Well, I decided um, when I was in college, undergrad, so <clears throat> I went to the University of Iowa. When I was in Iowa, I worked for a government-funded program for kids with special needs, an after-school program. So I would help kids with special needs go into the world. So we'd go to the library, we'd go to the grocery store, trying to get them to learn life skills, essentially, is what we were working on. Um, so that was my first taste, and I really loved my work there. And then when I entered grad school, I had reached out to my old cheer coach and I said, you know, I'm going to be home for the summer. I don't start grad school till the fall. I was wondering, that's where I got my master's degree. I was wondering if I could volunteer coach at all. And she was like, oh my gosh, we would love to have you. How about you just take a whole team? And I'd never coached before. So I was like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? But I decided to coach a middle school. So that's like 10, 11, 12 year olds, girls competitive cheer team. And although that might not directly be in line with being a therapist, it really helped me understand the norms and what this age group was going through in my town. So I felt like I learned a lot about that. And additionally, it taught me how to run a business because it was a nonprofit and I had to budget everything. I had to communicate with parents. I had to communicate getting space to practice in. So also like things that weren't necessarily what people might deem therapy, I still learned so much that impacts my career. And while I was doing that, I also volunteered in an inpatient um, psychiatric unit in Lurie Children's Hospital, downtown Chicago. So it's a really good children's hospital. And when I volunteered there, that was eye-opening to what being in the systems looks like and what an inpatient unit looks like. And I loved the work there. So a job opening app opened up and they actually came to me and were like, would you want to apply for this? We think you'd be a good fit. And so I ended up getting hired on in the inpatient unit at the children's hospital as well. So in the US, uh, I don't really know how it works, but are the majority of practices either private led or government led? Um, you know, I w- it's hard to say the majority because the country's so big and I just yeah, am, to be honest, not as educated on that. However, I will say dealing with insurance companies here is really hard. So a lot of practices go to private pay where they don't accept insurance. And there's a huge gap of access for people who have money and are able to pay out of pocket for therapy versus people who need to be within network. It's just a lot harder to sometimes find a therapist in some places don't accept insurance. Um, And, you know, I within Chicago have watched two to three other huge um, units be closed down because of lack of funding or other reasons. So also what I'm seeing is those government funded, those places that people can go to without having to pay out of pocket are becoming more scarce. And that is really concerning to me. So what is an average day like for you? Well, being in private practice, my um, since I see kids and teens, my day doesn't usually start till the afternoon. So I see it some college students and some older adults in the mornings. And then I'll have kind of a big gap where I might go get lunch. That's where I might, you might see me making my TikToks and I might, (laughs) um, 
do a podcast interview or edit my podcast that I'm trying to get moving and uh, more of the paperwork stuff. I have like a team meeting once a week where we all meet and talk about our cases. And if anybody's kind of stuck on a case or wants advice on a case, we can discuss it in that moment. And then I will usually see like five clients in a row after that school hour um, and be in the ages range from my youngest, I think is five and my oldest is 22. So I really have a wide range of ages that I'm seeing, but we're, I focus a lot on anxiety, ADHD. Actually, you mentioned something then about um, meeting up with peers to discuss uh, what's going on with your practice at the moment. I, I, I didn't realize this, but that's actually quite a common thing for therapists yeah. to sort of have like a social group of therapists where they can therapize each other i suppose yeah so our team meetings what it usually will look like and the thing is with therapy you know i am not i always remember the fact that like some i am the professional right and someone's looking to me to help them with things that they don't tell anyone a lot of times and and i don't take that lightly and we really try to do our best work in helping these people out of whatever they're feeling and I think it's really important to check each other. So I might have a different view than someone else on a case that doesn't mean I'm right or they're right, but being able to just have that sounding board and kind of checking each other and making sure like we're doing good care and it's helpful. Like I remember specifically, I was like, oh, I don't know um, how to kind of intervene on this specific issue. And one of my colleagues was like, oh, this is what I normally do. I'm like, that's such a good idea. How did I not think of that? So also it can be super helpful and you don't feel like you're in it alone. So that's quite interesting because obviously going through university, they can only teach you so much, but once you're out in that field, it's quite good to have those peers around you to bounce off and learn ideas from more experienced practitioners. Yes. And if you're a counselor like me, a licensed professional counselor or um, any of like of those master's degrees that I was discussing, I'm not as familiar with the doctorate level, but master's degrees, so social work and counselors, what I can do is I have to have weekly supervision. So one hour a week of super, someone supervising me, making sure I'm doing ethical work, making sure I'm doing good work. Also, it's for me too, to make sure I have someone I can go to for help. And in two years, usually, because you have to get a certain amount of hours of indirect, meaning education and like my team meeting that I was talking about in direct actual therapy, once you get a certain amount of hours, you can take a second test and it usually takes two years. You take a second test, then you technically don't need that supervision legally. And that's where you'll see a lot of those groups and form of other therapists kind of supporting each other. Um, but I think a lot of people don't realize that too, that therapists are being supervised and being making sure that they're doing evidence-based care, at least until they have what we call that C. So um, for a counselor, I'm a licensed professional counselor. Once I get my C, I'll be a licensed professional clinical counselor. So I think that the letters can be really confusing too for people outside of the field. So that's something to clarify what that means. So when you're, even after you've completed these exams, obviously um, we don't know everything we could know about how the brain works and emotion and all things like that yet. So how important is it to keep yourself updated with new advances in that kind of field? Oh, it's so important. And we are legally, we have to, in order to keep your license or you have to apply for your license every two years, reapply. And um, you have to do a certain amount of continued education 
I think where I get a little weary is we are moving so forward in so many ways, especially when we look at like sexuality and gender. And, you know, in America, we've been talking a lot about racism. And so my fear what I'm a little weary about is that we do get to pick what we want to learn about. So it is really on us to hold ourselves accountable, make sure we're educating ourselves. And that's why I always say to people, if you don't feel comfortable with your specific therapist, it's okay to move on because every therapist is trained differently. You know, they're what they educate themselves on might be different. So there's this sense of responsibility too on us to continue learning and growing in that way. And what are you actually doing in the sessions? Uh, you know, you're trying to help people and, and get them through tough times, but what does that usually involve? So every therapist I'd say has, and this I was taught in, in grad school and it really stuck with me. It's like every therapist has their own style. And if you're not authentically yourself, kids especially, they can smell that and they know and they <laughs> do not like it. <laughs> so I try to be myself, which means there's a lot of, a lot of times we're moving around, a lot of energy, sometimes um, not so much. But what I really try to do with my younger kids is, is, and my teens is tailor it for what fits them and something that I think would be beneficial. So I think people have this idea of you go into therapy and you have to spill out your whole life. You have to spill out all your deepest, darkest secrets. Mm. And that's not really what it looks like. And a lot, like I had a 10 minute conversation with one of my clients the other week about Kim Kardashian. Like it doesn't <laughs> have to be about therapy the whole time, but the sun, but what we do is we set goals and we check in on those goals and we build skills to be able to reach those goals. So how I kind of describe it to my clients is, listen, this is your space. This is your life. I can speak a million words at you. You don't have to do anything I say, right? So Mm. this is not about me. This is about your life. I just happen to go to school and learn a lot about how the brain works and how emotions work. So I can explain things to you. I can give you tools, but you know your life best. So I'm just here to help you. And I really try to, because the goal is to get the client to become their own therapist and not have them be reliant on you. And so I really put it on them and I have them create goals and I say what I think could be manageable, what I think we can achieve. Then I talk to the parent as well. And then we'll start working on those. And so as long as we're making progress, as long as we're moving forward, as long as we're for the majority of the session talking about their anxiety or what's going on, there is room to just continue to build that relationship, to do relaxation things. Sometimes I do mindful coloring. So we just listen to like acoustic music and color and there's candles in my office and the lights are like a little bit lower. So it's supposed to be like a relaxing space. So we just rate our mood before that. We do the coloring, we rate our mood after. So it's not always this intense discussion based of tell me your deepest darkest secrets or why you're anxious it's always like let me I will work with what I know the more I know the more I can help you but it's up to you how much you want to share mm. that sounds good that coloring to be honest I'm, I'm up for that, that sounds, <laughs> I'm already thinking very laying in darkness Pink Floyd and what colors <laughs> I can see there um so you mentioned obviously you work with teens and, and younger kids mm-hmm. um does that involve getting the parents involved as well because there must have to be some sort of understanding there obviously because their home environment is must be massive to their mental health yes if they're under seven or under we're really it's majority parent work i would say 
um, in my experience. And I like to even involve the parents when I'm working with teens. And I know everyone's probably like, oh, every teen, like, oh my gosh, I would never go to you then. <laughs> the idea is not that I'm telling them everything the teen says, but I as a parent would want to know too, like, what are you guys working on? What's going on? Like, it's scary to give your kid away to someone for an hour to for them to talk about their feelings. Mm. So I try to make a plan with the teen and what they feel comfortable with. And it could be as simple as today we talked about coping skills for when they're feeling overwhelmed. It doesn't need to be like the details of them showing me texts that their ex sent them that they're responding to, even though they know they shouldn't respond to because it makes them more anxious or sad. Like we don't have to share that part of the session, but to be able to give the parent a little bit of information is I think super helpful for both of them because then the parent can recognize that the kid's working on stuff and praise them for that if they see them using the tools and feel like they're kind of know what's going on and the teen doesn't have to answer questions about what's going on in therapy and can kind of bridge that relationship a little bit. So mental health is obviously a topic that's sort of grown I suppose over the last few years certainly um, we're becoming more aware of it and able to put into practice better things to help people have you seen sort of an increase in um, mental health or um, just being able to help people recently as well as as a your country and the world as a whole um, putting in more to help people yeah so depression or suicide rates had risen I think three times three um, with age 10 to 14 so that was before COVID So the idea too that, you know, I think people are becoming more aware of how much of a problem this is and being more open to talk about it. But I, yeah, I've seen an increase even with COVID and that is really what concerns me because of how much like anxiety, depression rates has increased 70% for teens over the past 10 years. So to think too, oh my gosh, now everybody has mental health problems. It's like, no, everybody, a lot of people already did. And now people who were kind of wavering on that line of, oh, they could cope on their own or, oh, they might need more support have crossed that line a lot of times in the sense that just given this uncertainty and the change in routine or being home all the time has really negatively impacted a lot of people. And I think, you know, the, the numbers, when we look at it, is what we would consider a pandemic in the, in the mental health field around suicide and the rising rates. So I'm so I'm happy that people are paying attention more, but this has been an issue that's been around for a long time and has just been getting worse and worse. And I just don't think people have been as aware. Uh, at this point, um, if there's anyone listening who maybe is dealing with anything, um, any advice that you could give them? Yes. So first of all, there's a suicide hotline that every country has um, a suicide hotline number that you can call and they're in the process of trying to make one that is universal. But just know that there is someone who can listen and they don't know one in your life. So you don't have to worry about them telling anyone anything. You don't have to worry about them doing anything. It's just someone to listen. So I definitely say reach out to that hotline and remind yourself, like, I just described how many people are struggling. So you're not alone. And that's a big thing I hear is like, they think they're the only one struggling. I did this workshop group where I thought I was doing the most cutting edge, most research-based ways to build these middle school girls' self-esteem. And at the end, I gave a survey. I was like, what did you think was the most helpful? And I'm thinking they're going to say, oh, you know, you teaching me how to manage my anxiety or this or that. And 
the majority of the responses were knowing other people my age have the same worries and thoughts as I do. So I thought it was going to be my skills. It was not my skills. It was knowing they're not alone. So if anyone's listening and they feel like they're alone in their suffering, you're not alone and try to reach out to someone, an adult. It can be a teacher. It can be a friend, a parent's friend. It can be your parent. It can be an aunt and uncle. And a lot of people tell me it's hard to know. Okay, what do I say though? And so I say, say it's not really about saying it correctly. It's just about getting the words out. So however you feel comfortable. I say you can write a letter and shove it under the door to your parents' bedroom. You can text them. You can tell them over the phone. However you feel comfortable, it's just important that we get those words out. Definitely. There was a, a massive campaign actually all across the UK about uh, speaking to your mates. Um, and it goes back to kind of what you were saying about just realizing that everyone has the same thoughts and, you know, problems in their lives. And it is quite comforting, I think. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so do you think this sort of increase in mental health, obviously everyone's struggled and we're now talking about it more, but do you think it's been impacted by sort of constantly being able to access social media and comparing yourselves to everyone and not just social media you know traditional media as well and not just comparing yourself to the people you live in the local area but to people all around the world yeah so research has shown that there's a couple of things at play and what they had this article that i was reading had said was um essentially they put it into this pressure, right? So keeping up with the Jones that's saying like, you know, you got to have what your neighbor has, or you got to be as smart as your neighbor, things like Mm. that. We used to compare, people used to compare themselves to their environment. Now people are comparing themselves to the whole world because that's what we have access to. That's what we see. That's what we've become now has been this line of what we should be doing. So there's this intense pressure. And also, I think with social media, parents feel less in control of what their kids are viewing, doing, things like that. So I think there's also this pressure that comes from certain areas and parents and this idea of like, you have to get good grades, you have to go to college, you have to do this or that. And it's a lot of pressure. So that we see a heightened pressure for performance. And think about sports as well. It's less like, oh, club sport. Like, oh, we just have fun. It's so much more competitive and about winning and things like that. So Mm. we're seeing pressure across the board. We're seeing um, social media. They said, first of all, it's really what the biggest piece of the social media is time. So how much time are you spending on it and what you're doing on it? So someone who's, and that's where I get really stuck. Like people, just the assumption of social media is bad. It's like, it really depends how you're using it. And if somebody is on it for more than three hours a day, there is a, we have it. Research is very new. So they're, they're starting to see a correlation with, um, with being more anxious or having depressive thoughts. And then, um, so that's kind of for the time piece. And then what you're viewing is also super important. So some kids might be looking at a bunch of people with like really skinny bodies. And then it's like, that might impact their self-esteem or using it. Like you're watching your friends make funny videos and you're laughing. So it really also depends like what you're kind of intaking. Mm. And I love how you brought up the idea too of regular media. I, there's, hasn't been research out yet, but I'm sure the, 
the political climate and the Black Lives Matter movement and becoming more aware about racism within our society, I'm sure that has caused a lot of, and, and I see, I hear so many of my clients talking about it. So I know that at least where in my area, it has caused a lot of anxiety, a lot of um, some hopelessness that like, are things ever going to get better? So I, I'm seeing these effects. And I do think having access to social media and what you post and, you know, a lot of my teens will post like they get in a fight with their boyfriend or girlfriend and they're posting about it on social media. That's not a helpful thing. Yeah, that's not going to work out. (laughs) My fear though, is I also had a client who was telling me how people are getting murdered around our area. And I was like, what? Oh, I learned it on TikTok. Oh God. Well, let's make sure that that is not true. So the idea too, and I, and then I, I say, you know, how come I'm so happy that you brought this up to me. I'm so happy you feel comfortable talking mm. about this. Have you talked to anyone else about this? Would you have brought this up if you didn't come see me? And a lot of times the answer is no. And that's what really worries me. And that's why I think there needs to be a little bit better of a way we discuss social media because, you know, a lot of people tell me, oh, I just take the phone away, but then you end up giving it back to them. They haven't learned anything different. So you really have to make sure it's an open discussion about social media. So when your kid does see something scary, their fear isn't, oh, I'm going to get my phone taken away. I'm going to get the app taken away. It's a safe space to have that discussion. Mm. And how do we use social media appropriately? A hundred percent. I think my personal opinion is um, that the media now is very much extreme on either point of view. There's no real middle ground. So, you know, there's no actual conversation about, well, is it that way? Or, you know, can Mm -hmm. we do this to fix it? But it's just very, to get the clicks, you know, it has to be extreme. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think for me, that's probably something that I don't even watch the news anymore because it just depresses me. So (laughs) yeah, it's hard. And that's where, so with, when I talk about especially when in the U.S. when the election was happening, my biggest piece of advice was it's important to stay informed. There's a difference between staying informed and like being obsessive over it. So get to know what's going on in the world and then turn it off. And that's something that I think um, people were struggling with, which I totally understand during that time. What would be some personality traits that you see in yourself and uh, other therapy or professionals around you that I think that you really think help them thrive? I really empathy, right? So I think being empathetic is something that's really important. Um, boundaries are super important. I, I think, you know, I'm, I look very young and I'm very like bubbly and I jump around a lot. Like, you know, my personality is very much um, like that. So I think it's really important, especially with my teens, keeping healthy boundaries because you are an adult and therapy is not, I'm not becoming your best friend. Um, and kind of really making being professional, but also human and not, and one thing, the therapy, all the therapists I love never think of themselves too highly. You know, we always know the world, the research is very new in this field. We, we really feel like the client knows themselves best and how do we empower them? So I think for me, you know, it's people who don't take themselves too seriously who are professional and keep boundaries and who are really empathetic. I think those are kind of the three things I've seen a lot with people I really like to work with. And what are some of the biggest positives and maybe opportunities you've had out of this industry so far? Obviously your, uh, your reels and TikToks are hilarious. Um, <laughs> so you, you're building a, you know, a brand and an image for yourself on online. Um, but what are some of the big you know, positives you take out of doing this? 
Yeah. So, well, I started on TikTok accidentally. And so it wasn't like I went in being like, okay, I'm going to post and this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to help build my business or my brand. You know, I was running this middle school girls workshop that I created after I would have my middle school cheer team, every practice, every, the first practice stand up and say something they're proud of. And it was literally like pulling teeth. And then they would all copy the next person, right? Like, oh, I got an A on my science test. The next person's like, I got an A on my math test. I'm like, okay, no one can say anything else about grades. And I'm like, I have a dog. And the next person's like, I have a dog. I'm like, okay, no one can say anything about pets. So they really struggled with, um, you know, praising themselves in front of other people. And I said, girls, what is going on? Like, what is, they're like, this is so awkward. I'm like, what's the difference between being confident and being like cocky or full of yourself? And they all looked at me dead in the eyes and were like, there is no difference. I'm like, no, there's a huge difference. <laughs> so then I was like, I need to do something about this. Of course, my brain's always going. So I was like, I'm going to make a workshop. So I created this workshop where the first 45 minutes we talk about social media use, about self-esteem building, about how grades aren't everything and just kind of the stuff that they were struggling with. And then the second half is we created like a philanthropy project together. So becoming part of something that's bigger than you. And one day we were talking about social media and I said to the girls, I said, listen, um, let's write down all of your social media time. And they all looked at me like, uh, -uh. <laughs> like, come on, like we're going to write it on the board. And so I have this big board in my office. So we wrote down and averaged out how much time everyone was spending on their phones. And I said, if everybody can decrease their time, I'll bring you all Starbucks. Like I'll bring you a treat. And one of the girls looked at me and she's like, Lindsay, I was like, oh no, here we go. You know, you just kind of know. I'm like, what's coming? She's like, we don't want Starbucks. I'm like, okay, what do you guys want? Like, we want you to download TikTok and post a TikTok. Nice. So I was like, absolutely not happening. I am not <laughs> TikTok, no way. And then quarantine happened and I used to work at the hospital full time. So I quit my full time job at the hospital. I was working at my practice and I love to be busy. So I was sitting around for, for like a week and then I'm like, okay, I need to do something. So I'm like, why don't I download TikTok? All my clients talk about it. Let me just take a look. So I got on TikTok and the first thing I saw was Dr. Julie Smith, who's a TikToker. TikToker. Yes, and, yeah. yes. And I was like, oh my gosh, I could do this. So I was like, this will help like the girls that I won't be able to see throughout quarantine. So I literally thought it was just going to be like these 10 girls that I'd been working with. And those would be my viewers. And so I put out a post and I'm like, shout out to my middle school girls. Like you got me to download TikTok. And um, that week I posted a video and it got like 4 million views. And wow. then I was like, oh my goodness. Now what? <laughs> so I had this little <laughs> moment of, oh no. And I really didn't post on social media prior to that very often. Like I think maybe once every three months, like if I went to a wedding or something, you'd see me post an Instagram. So the it was magic a whole of new social. World. Yes. So, right. So a whole new world I walked into. Um, and then I just, you know, I had a lot of fun posting. So I just was posting and then Cosmo reached out to me and they put me up on their Snapchat and I was like, oh my gosh, what is happening? Vice News wrote an article about me. So I've had a lot of media come to me to um, interview me. I've been on like this podcast I would never have been on if I didn't post on <laughs> social media. So in that sense, I've had a lot of opportunities. Um, I try not to take clients from TikTok. So if somebody reaches out to me from TikTok, 
one, I can only treat people in my state. And then two, um, because legally licensing laws, like that's how it works. Mm -hmm. And two, they already have a pre, they, they already have an idea of who I am. So that can really impact the therapeutic relationship. So I'm very careful about trying not to take clients who have found me from TikTok because what can happen in the therapy room then is let's say give them a skill to practice and it doesn't go well. And then they're like, oh, well, it's my fault because she's obviously a good therapist. Everybody loves her on social media. So I'm not going to tell her it didn't work. So I have to be very careful. It doesn't impact the therapeutic relationship or like I was getting bullied on TikTok at one point and, you know, some of my clients told me like, oh, I was really worried because I saw that video of you. So it's this idea too of like, I tell my clients it's a public forum. I can't tell you not to follow me. However, we do have to talk about it then if you see my post or if something comes up. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's brought me so many opportunities. It's also made me think a lot about how I'm trying to be on social media and be still, you know, being a therapist is my number one priority. So making sure I'm still do ethical and doing a good job of that and putting my best forward for my clients. Um, and, you know, I'm just trying to see where to go next from here. And, and what's your, your biggest positive out of actually doing the, the therapy? you know, what, what do you take away from it? I learned that, you know, I went in really thinking like, I'm going to change people's lives and I'm going to tell them magical words and they're going to heal. And I really thought like, um, that was going to happen. So I think what I could say, honestly, from becoming a therapist is I learned so much about myself and I've bettered all of my relationships in my own life. So that I'm eternally grateful for and not trying to tell people, oh, you should do this or that, or really like listening better and allowing people space to make their own decisions. And I have just taken away that, you know, life is really hard mm. at all ages and it's okay if it's hard nobody's perfect and expecting perfection is just really setting yourself up to be mad at yourself and to fail. So um, my biggest piece is just watching people have that realization and watching people get empowered by the, from themselves and watching people really start to use their voice. Like that is my favorite part of therapy and being there for people in those really dark times as well, because, you know, there's something really, really, um, something really meaningful about being able to support someone when they're at their lowest and then watching them build themselves up and seeing them at their highest. So I love being able to kind of see their world through their eyes. And on the other side of that, what would be some of the uh, biggest negatives or less favorable aspects of the industry? Yeah. I think what people, I would want people to know before you get into therapy is it is a lot, you talk a lot less than you think you do because I love to talk. So I was like, oh, I be talking all the time. I'm a therapist. That's be my job. You don't talk as much as you think you do. Um, and it's hard when, you know, when you can't help someone. I'm not, you know, you're not a super, per, a super human. So I think, you know, not at, some people struggle and just like in medical fields, you know, some people can't get better or they really struggle for a long time. And it's the same thing in the therapy world and you can't blame yourself for when people need higher levels of care. And so that's really hard. I think I've had to send a few clients to the hospital and that I think those moments have been hard. 
Um, I had a client earlier this year pass away from cancer who was younger than me. That was really hard because on social media, here I am, you know, smiles and posting and I, I, and things like that. And I, you know, recently got engaged and then this, while I'm trying to, um, understand and, you know, heal from this loss that I had too. So I think, there's pieces of it that are really hard. And the hardest part is you can't talk to people about it really. Like you, I can talk to my supervisor, but it's not like I can come home to Danny, my fiance and be like, oh my gosh, she said this. And oh my gosh, this reminded me of my client, you know, because you, of that confidentiality. So it, sometimes it can feel like you are dealing with this on your own. Mm. Yeah. That, that, well, that sounds very hard. Um, mm-hmm. we, we like to talk a little about salary expectations so we go away and find some average figures and then see if you kind of agree with them so uh-huh. it looks like um in the uk an average salary is around thirty-seven thousand, which would be about fifty thousand us dollars um does that sound about right for you um i would say it really depends what you're working like where you're working you know mm-hmm. private practice versus in a hospital um I would say, I'm trying to think, that sounds about right for starting salaries, I would say. Um, But a lot of people, I mean, also I live in Chicago, so the cost of living is higher. So I would Mm -hmm. say around 60 would be more of where I would put it at, um, 50 to 60. And then, you know, there's that, yeah, I, I think that's about accurate. Okay, perfect. Um, what would be something that's uh, not in the job description that you uh, never expected to come across? Mm, that's a good question. Something <laughs> that I never thought I would come across. Um, I've been I've been hit on by some parents before, and I never thought I was going to have to. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, when I worked at the hospital, uh, I would do like check-ins with parents every day, and there were a few, few people who made me pretty uncomfortable. So um, I did not think I was going to have to deal with that. Um, and I, that yeah. was one. Yeah. That's fair enough. Um, and any skills that you would recommend people developing if they wanted to go into this industry that maybe aren't so obvious um, to be a therapist? Yeah, I thought, you know, I thought you go into this field and everyone's going to be like, oh, thank you. You helped me so much, you know, <laughs> and like sometimes you help people and they don't even realize it. So, you know, if you're if you're going into the field to get that praise, right, that that, oh, my gosh, thank you. You, you helped me or you saved me like you're not going to get it all the time. You're not going to get it even as much as you think you are. Um and people don't really know the therapy world. So people come in and I'm explaining, oh, this is, this is how the process goes. Like, yeah, sometimes it's, you're better. Sometimes, you know, it's harder. It's like two step forward, one step back. You really have to explain the basics to people. And I get it. Like, this is my world. This is what I read. This is what I watch. This is what, like, I educate myself on, what I talk about all day. Other people, it's like their first time being exposed to the therapy side of the world. And it's like a whole different language. So I would really just, you know, practice getting to know 
any community you're in, that you can volunteer at hospitals and trying to build those communication skills and really um, building that internal, like we talk about internal versus external motivators. And so if, an ex, if you're doing this for an external motivator of, oh, I'm helping people and I get a gold star, like, yes, people are like, oh, you're so like helpful and things like that. You're not going to last very long. If it's internal, like I know I did my best work. I know I helped this person, even if they couldn't see it, or I know I'm doing the best work I can do, then I think you can be really successful in this field. I'd imagine it's quite a competitive industry to get into and, and get good, good roles in. So have you got any recommendations or advice for people of things, extra things they could do to make themselves stand out? Yeah, volunteer. That's like my biggest thing. I would say like I volunteered in inpatient psych unit and I think I learned so much. You can also, you can also reach out to um, private practices and say, Hey, can I come volunteer? Can I help you run a group? Can I help um, your billing? And just try to get to know people because that is the biggest thing, right? I was in college. I was in a sorority and this girl, my sorority, who was like three years younger than me, I was talking about, oh, I mean, I'm going to grad school. How am I going to get, how am I going to learn? Because there's no internships for therapists unless you're in school. And she was like, oh, I know my mom's friend work, owns a practice. So she got me a job there. And then while I was there, I, I applied for internships. And the person who owned this practice happened to know the person I wanted the internship for. So she's like, oh, I'll put a good word in for you. So again, like all industries, it's a lot of who you know. And so I'd really recommend just starting building relationships with therapists in your community. And uh, would you still go into the industry knowing everything you know now? I would. I really love my work. I definitely would go into the industry the same. I think I would be less anxious. I would be a lot more calm <laughs> and I would feel a lot more comfortable. Um, but I would definitely go through it all again. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Lindsay. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you. Well, thank you for having me. This was fun. Thank you again. And uh, where can people find you on show, social media, especially TikTok? Yeah, on TikTok, you can find me at lindsay.fleming, LPC. Um, and on Instagram, you can find me at lindsay underscore Fleming, LPC. And Fleming is spelled with one M, not, I know some people spell it with two M. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been Thanks, a pleasure Lindsay. having you on. Thank you.